welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Richard Sears, science writer for Madden America, here today with Marcella Otalara. Ms. Otalara works with the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies as the principal investigator for government research into MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. She also worked as a co-therapist during the first phase of MDMA research and currently leads the MDMA therapy training for MAPS. In addition to her research, Ms. Otalara works as a therapist utilizing fine arts in the treatment of trauma. Welcome, Ms. Otalara, and thank you for making time to talk with us today. Thank you. So, I'm wondering if we could start by you just telling us a little bit about what brought you to your work, both as like a therapist and artist, and also um, what drew you towards your interest in um, psychedelics and MDMA? Yes. So, I started first as an artist, and I still am. And mostly, I think I came to that from having dyslexia and not being able to understand things in a way that I felt that others could understand it. And I had, I really struggled with it. And art was a way for me to really communicate and to be able to feel like I could express myself in that way. So that's how I came to art. And um, in terms of psychedelics was doing my own healing with psychedelics, with uh, MDMA-assisted therapy specifically, and just realizing how profound that was and how it changed the trajectory of my life. And I wanted to be able to work towards making this accessible for other people. So it started then, so 37 years ago, in that process of really um, wanting to bring this to where it is today or or more like where it's going to be maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the research that you have been doing with MAPS. Um, I know there were, I believe, three phases, phase one, two, and three. And uh, just kind of what were you guys doing in general? Um, what were you investigating? Um, and what did you find? So the first investigations were mostly um, phase one about safety, right? And what populations to use and, and um, animal studies. And, and I wasn't a part of that. So I came in in the phase two studies. We did a phase two study in Boulder and mostly to work with, to investigate safety, continue investigating safety, um, efficacy, um, how it was working for the population of PTSD and dose response. So in phase two, we used three different doses to kind of investigate what those three doses would do. Um, and now we're doing a phase three study. And again, safety, efficacy, but a phase three is also um, the good findings that we had with phase two. Could those be duplicated? in multiple sites. So we have 15 sites, including two in Canada, one in Israel, and the rest in the US. And um, I don't know if you saw the results of the first part, the first study for phase three, very, very promising results that was uh, published in uh, Nature Medicine. And uh, we're finding that it's really positive, you know, really, really positive results, especially uh, for this population. So. Now we're, in, we're doing another study for phase three. This will be the last study before we apply to the FDA 
for um, a new drug administration for MDMA to become a medicine for PTSD and hopefully other conditions as well. We also do a study, which is a healthy volunteer study, which is for therapists that we've trained to do this work uh, for them to have an option of also having an experience with MDMA as part of their continued training. And it looks exactly the way that they're going to be doing it. So uh, that's called a healthy volunteer study. Oh, interesting. So you mentioned on the horizon, we're kind of hoping to get this approved for, for use in more psychotherapy, correct? How far away does that seem like it is? Like how long do you think that'll take? Well, our goal is 2023. I'm holding on to that one. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a bit about um, how psychedelics in general facilitate healing. Um, I know you're obviously doing the research with MDMA, um, but I believe you've also done some some stuff with ketamine too as well. Is that correct? Yes, I do ketamine in my, my private practice. Right. So from your perspective, what is it about these drugs that like these altered states that allow for healing that might not occur otherwise, or that might be more difficult otherwise? I think um, the non-ordinary state that psychedelics provides, provides a different perspective. So it's like looking at your own life from a different perspective than maybe you hadn't looked at before, an angle that you didn't have access to before. And in doing that is being able to come home to yourself. So now this is about me, who I am as an individual in this very moment. So it's looked at um, looking at yourself a little bit more objectively without the conditioning that we, that we have acquired. And so it's a perfect uh, place to start from to work with trauma, to work with your issues where it's not about um, a lot of times therapy is about something needs to change right now. Something needs to be different. Something needs to be getting gotten rid of. And this treatment is not about getting rid of anything. It's about realizing that we don't get rid of anything and that we don't need to do that in order to heal. So that's one of the reasons. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, um, again, I know you're mostly experienced with like the MDMA and the ketamine stuff, but do you see this as, as similar to kind of, I mean, this kind of healing has been around for a really long time. Like it's not something new that we're discovering, correct? It's kind Absolutely. of, right. I mean, um, we have a lot of traditions, indigenous wisdom traditions that have taught us a great deal about how to work with non-ordinary states. Right. And those have been going on for centuries. Um, and that's what I was thinking. This uh, in a lot of ways sounds similar to me to something like, um, I've read about the like ceremonies that people do with ayahuasca and things like that. Um, so again, kind of conjuring this altered state and being able to see things from a different perspective. Um, do you think there's some are, are some equivalences there with uh, kind of the way that we're doing or trying to do now therapy with MDMA to those kind of more indigenous traditions? Yes, absolutely. I think that you know it's important to think about when we think about MDMA assisted therapy. Right. It's a it's sort of like a Western term. But if you think about indigenous cultures that have used medicine, have used psychedelics in non-ordinary states, 
there is always a group of people, right? There's a community. There are um, the person or people are being held in this space. It's a sacred space of being invited in and with a lot of intention. And we do the same thing of having intention of really paying attention to set and setting what does it look like the, the space where we're inviting people to do this work? Who is it with? We we have our model is with two people, two therapists at the same time. So it's um, learning. What we've learned from indigenous traditions is the intention of it, the sacredness of it, and also the non-pathology of it. Like how that it's not coming in with a pathology. It's coming in with yourself and how do we um how do we gather the parts of yourself that have been oftentimes marginalized because of trauma how do we bring those back in so that you can begin to have a relationship with them so i know there may be some people in our audience that have read about some of the therapies i know there's the the mdma stuff happening i believe there's also some things happening with um psilocybin now um, so there might be some people in our audience that are considering pursuing some of this stuff. So what what should someone that's considering this or looking at this as an option, what are some considerations they should look into? And are there certain um, maybe groups of people, certain types of people that this is going to work better for, or maybe certain kinds of suffering? I know you mentioned PTSD. Um, looks like it's you know maybe doing well for that. Would it would it be helpful for other ailments? Do you think other kind of psychological suffering? I'm sure. You know, we haven't we haven't re- we haven't done extensive research on other ones. Um, we've done some research on anxiety due to autism or like social anxiety and also anxiety with um, with like life term illnesses. So I think it would it would be helpful with for other conditions. I do think there's a caution around how to do it, where to do it, who to do it with. You know, I think that for sure people have had experiences on their own that have been incredibly powerful and meaningful and have changed their lives and have been very healing. And I have also seen and have been referred to my practice many times, people who have had additional trauma because of uh, having a psychedelic experience where somebody wasn't there to hold space for them. Somebody didn't know what to do with what came up for them. Mm-hmm. And often the people who were taking them were not thinking that they were going to work with trauma. Some of them might not have even remembered that they had a traumatic experience and a psychedelic can bring it up. And so important to know that the people that you're with are people who can hold any kind of space that you might be in. Mm. Because when that doesn't happen, um, then there's an additional trauma, right? Here's somebody who cannot hold space for me. This is not safe. What do I do with it? Um, That can cause a lot, a lot of harm. So really being careful about how you choose you're sharing this non-ordinary state with it's a very vulnerable state yeah so you're kind of talking about harm reduction a little bit here too right just um yeah um so just to kind of follow that thread for a moment um what would you say to someone that had had a difficult experience um with like psychedelics i know that can like like you're saying right it can kind of cause a trauma like just having that experience maybe not being around the right people or something like that 
what would you say to somebody that's had an experience like that? Like how might they go about integrating that or getting through it? I think uh, reaching out to people who are used to doing integration work with psychedelics, right? A lot of times people who have done harm reduction um, understand how to begin to integrate those experiences and how to help the individual maybe process what they would have processed then and couldn't because it got interrupted in some way. Because really, a psychedelic experience is not... It, it's a, it can be challenging, but it's not bad. And I think bad happens only if you, if you don't have the space to kind of work with it. But the actual experience could be really difficult and really challenging and can be very powerful if somebody's there to help you through it. So it's finding somebody that can help you integrate it that knows about psychedelic integration. Kind of makes me wonder too if, and I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you'll have anything to say on this one or not, but like if someone is already kind of using substances like this recreationally, I wonder if they can, I don't know, maybe get more out of the experience or maybe less out of the experience because they have this kind of recreational connection to it rather than the kind of the sacred space that you're describing. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't know. And, you know, I mean, I think a recreational a recreational space can also be a sacred space, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I'm not excluding that. And I, and I'm definitely not excluding, um, getting a lot of benefit out of recreational use. And my experience has been, um, has been mostly in a therapeutic setting. So I do think it's about the intention, right? If somebody mm-hmm. takes a psychedelic and they want to, uh, and they're in a safe space with people that they trust, and they're just having that um, that experience of connection and bonding, that's a beautiful space for somebody to be in. And when somebody says, okay, I'm going to take this psychedelic with the purpose of um, addressing wounds in my life, addressing trauma, working through those in a therapeutic setting with therapists that can hold that space is a very different space. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, you know, it's sort of comparing two very, very different things. And, and um, we, we have had people that have maybe done some recreational use and um, have worked in this, have done, have worked in the study and it's like, wow, it's so different, but it's also powerful, right? They've had powerful experiences and this is something that has a different intention. Yeah. So it really has a lot like you're describing set and setting, right? Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of describe what a therapy session with MDMA or ketamine would look like, um, you know, how you go about guiding somebody through that experience. So ketamine and MDMA are two very, very, very different substances. Um, ketamine is, is short-lived it, with regards to like when I do a ketamine session with someone, it takes anywhere between two and three hours for the actual experience to be there and for and to begin the integration process. And a lot of that integration happens after. And we can meet in a regular thera- um, a regular therapy session to integrate some of those experiences. And it's very, ketamine is very nonlinear. It doesn't have 
It doesn't have like a, a story that can be explained as this is a beginning, a middle and an end kind of story. It's more um, a felt sense of what happens to the body and what happens to your experiences in life after you have it. And so it's, it's a way to be mindful about how it has changed um, your reaction and, and the impact it has on your life after the experience. Whereas MDMA is uh, much longer. So we in the study, we stay with somebody for eight hours. The two mm. therapists stay for eight hours with the participant from the time they take it until way after the drug has worn off to begin that process of integration mm. in the last few hours. And um, so they're pretty different. So the way that it looks like for MDMA in our studies is they come in and they take the medicine and um, we offer a supplemental dose of half of whatever they took at the beginning, about an hour and a half later. Uh, music is a very big part of it, of both actually, both ketamine and um, MDMA. And in in our study in with MDMA, the music is there not as a suggestion to try to evoke something, but more as a support. So it matches the tone of what is happening in the moment. If the person is really calm, the music is very calm. If it's activated, if, if there's a lot of activation, the music is more activating. So it just, it supports the process that is already happening. Um, we offer eye shades and headphones if they want them. And we work with um, having times where they're inward and they're really thinking about and feeling into what's happening for them in the moment, listening to the music and really having an experience of connection to themselves. And the rest of the time, they talk to the therapist. So it's kind of back and forth. The therapist might suggest this might be a good time to go inside. Maybe they've talked about something challenging and difficult that has come up and they've worked some with it and it's like oh maybe a suggestion to go inside and continue working with it and seeing how it how what comes up for them so so it's it's a it's a little bit of both and if we start like at nine o'clock in the morning by four o'clock it starts tapering down mm, we we describe mdma like a wave it has these waves and they get pretty intense and then there's a lull, like a little bit of a rest period and then the waves happen and then those waves get less and less intense as the day goes by so i wonder um if you could talk to us a little bit about how using these drugs for kind of therapeutic purposes compares to using something like uh, like the more commonly used medications that we might give now, um, especially for something like PTSD. So like benzodiazepines a lot of times, I think, uh, Xanax and things like that. Um, so what does the, the harm profile for something like MDMA look like compared to the harm profile for something like benzos, you know, in therapeutic use like this? So of course there's risks to anything we take, right. right? There's always going to be risks and we will continue to investigate and to research um, the safety of MDMA. Um, I think a major difference is that we're offering MDMA three times, not something that you take every day, right. not something that you need to continue to take for the rest of your life. 
maybe later on you might need another session sometime you know if we're talking like post-approval maybe that would happen but is what can happen in three sessions and i think sometimes um like where the the medicines that you're describing like if you have a benzo diazepine or and and even like an antidepressant right they have their place for sure and i think that they have helped people be able to live their lives be able to work be able to be okay uh, minimize some of their symptoms and the intensity of their symptoms mm -hmm. and um and there's also a lot of side effects with it right there's also a price to pay with that and it's um when to taper down from those so that we can begin to really address some of the other things that are there that when we don't have when we don't have the heightened state of suffering, we don't have the heightened state of joy either. And so what we're suggesting is taking um, a psychedelic where you can dive into, like really move through the traumas, address them, see what's there. It's only the beginning. You know, the session itself is the beginning they have a lot of work to do afterwards but it get it gives them a felt sense of what it's like to be connected to self of what it's like to deal with um their experiences in a way that doesn't um debilitate their life doesn't stop their life right like doesn't cripple them and so they can really remember that right because it's a felt sense of what it, that's like and they get a sense of this is what i need to do in the future when things come up when i have difficulties so it doesn't stop there but it is a beginning of being able to be connected to that experiences that maybe before they were trying to avoid or there was a fear every time that they brought it up and there were a lot of symptoms associated with that both psychological and physical symptoms so so it's a it's a different kind of therapy right it's also a therapy that it's using a drug but using psychotherapy with it at the same time and you mentioned too um the the mdma treatments right so it's just like a you would take it three times, not something that you're doing every day. Um, and you mentioned kind of with benzos, there's that tapering down benzos and antidepressants and several of the other drugs that we use. There's that kind of tapering down that we have to do. Um, and I just, I don't really have a question here. I just kind of wanted to highlight that, right? It's a very different way of treating. Um, I don't think with MDMA, the use that you're describing, like withdrawal or tapering down or anything like that wouldn't really be an issue. Am I, am I correct in making that assumption? Yeah, no, you wouldn't taper down from it. You know, yeah. it's just an experience. By the end of the day, most people, um, if there was an adverse um, event that happened, like lack, um, lack of appetite or mm -hmm. uh, the senses are, are heightened, by the time that they leave after eight hours, most of those are gone. So that kind of, I guess, suppose leads into this next question I have too, which is a really big one. So, you know, we'll try to try to do what we can with it. Um, but why do you think we consider some drugs therapeutic and, and not others? There's this whole class of drugs that we just kind of have excluded from, you know, being, being used for healing for a really long time. Um, what do you think's going on there? Well, I think that 
One, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of miscommunication, a lot of stigma yeah. that happens with uh, specifically psychedelics, right? There's been so much appropriation of the way that from indigenous cultures. You know, if I think about one of the reasons why the first study was shut down was because it was all this misinformation that went out about the dangers of MDMA and some of the things that were being written that are still in the, in, in the internet, by the way, are like MDMA causes holes in the brain if you even take it one time. And so there's so much misinformation out there. And has MDMA been dangerous? Absolutely. And most of the dangers that we have seen out there are one, what is it cut with? What are you really taking when you take a psychedelic, which I think is probably the biggest harm that we have with psychedelics now um, with them being criminalized is that we don't know what somebody's taking mm -hmm. and that that can really cause harm and death at times. If you think about most of the people that have gone to the emergency room after taking MDMA, it's due to anxiety. Mm. And, and, and so I think that refers back to something that we were talking about before, where it's, if, if anxiety comes up, if a trauma comes up that you didn't expect, if I'm not in a safe place, mm. right? If that can cause, that can make the experience really difficult and challenging and scary. And so going to the hospital is the right thing to do. That's really most of the time that people go to the hospital with MDMA is because of that. So I had kind of one more question concentrating on the psychedelics here. And this is actually uh, from a colleague of mine that I was talking to earlier. So a lot of the drugs that we use kind of in psychiatry, um, at least a lot of authors think we kind of overprescribe them. Um, we may maybe prescribe them a little too often or a little too readily um, in some cases. Um, I'm wondering if you think there's any kind of risks for, for these kinds of drugs, like hallucinogens in general, but specifically MDMA in terms of like overprescription, maybe <laughs> profiteering a little bit. Do you think there's a risk here for, for that kind of stuff to happen? Well, I hope not. Mm -hmm. And I do think that when MDMA hopefully becomes a medicine to treat PTSD and other conditions, it won't be that anybody can prescribe it. It would be that they go to a clinic with trained therapists who have a certificate to do MDMA-assisted therapy mm -hmm. and where they know where the medicine is coming from and they know what the treatment is like and they can be tailored to an individual of what they need. So then, um, so I don't think that that can happen. The same thing is not going to happen that ha has happened with um, antidepressants, for instance, or, or the way that we overprescribe, because I do think that there is overprescription, uh, overprescribing a lot and that, um, you know, now it is so amazing how many kids I see that have um, a lot of prescriptions for antidepressants or Adderall or, or anything like that. And, and a lot of it is mostly, I see it due to that we're averse to suffering. We think if somebody is, is sad and suffering because they're upset about something that happened, we immediately want to prescribe them something because they shouldn't be suffering. But suffering is part of life. Mm. And if 
if my, you know, like, for instance, I, I had a client that came in and it was their friend had died. Well, of course they're suffering and of course they're in mourning and they're grieving and they're in pain. So prescribing something is, it's like, so we're taking that away. Maybe it's necessary at some point if the person continued, maybe, you know, at some point it's going to be helpful, but it shouldn't be our first response. It shouldn't be our first response. It should be way down the line. How can we actually help people um, and support people in, in what they're going through in a safe way, instead of just immediately saying, take this drug and then you're good to go. And that's what we're doing with MDMA is come with whatever is happening in the moment. That's what we're going to work with, whatever the pain is. A lot of our participants say, I'm not sure why they call this ecstasy <laughs> because it's not necessarily fun. Right. You know, it can have really beautiful moments, but it's also really challenging and a lot of hard work and connects us to the fact that suffering is real and our pain is real and that's not going to go away. Yeah, I, I like that idea. It kind of, for me, connects to what you were talking about earlier, just having that space to hold certain experiences and maybe for whatever reason, we don't make a lot of room. We don't have a lot of space to hold other people's suffering sometimes. No, we don't. Or we think it needs to happen fast, right? Like if if your family member dies, you get mm -hmm. a week off of work or two weeks off of work, and then you should be done with that process of grieving. Right. This is not what happens in other countries. <laughs> you know, right. Grieving doesn't happen like that. Grieving happens as a process. And can we as clinicians be there for that process? All right. So I want to switch gears a little bit away from the really interesting psychedelic stuff, but I want to talk a little bit about fine art and therapy. Um, um, how, how do you use fine art and therapy? Um, mm -hmm. what, what does that look like when you're doing sessions with that? So, um, I have done them a lot in my private practice, not with everybody, kind of just judging. I, sometimes I suggest it to people and they say no, or sometimes I don't suggest it. The same thing with the study. I think that art is a way to, to arrive at a process non-verbally so that sometimes our experiences don't have words. And that when we begin to give them words, they don't uh, do justice to what it is that is actually happening internally. Whereas maybe a color, uh, a splash, something that can be, can be put down on a piece of paper, it's like, it looks like this, you know, it looks like this. And I think any kind of the arts, I remember um, I used to work a lot with kids and sometimes I would have, I had a drum and I would say, they would say, I don't know how to explain what's happening for me. And I would say, can you explain it on the drum? And then they would like go wild with that drum, right? It's like, this is what it feels like. And that has no words, but boy, does it explain where they're coming from. So it's being able to um, access another part of ourselves of giving, um, honoring what it is that we're feeling that might not have words. So maybe you've answered a little bit of this next question already, but I still want to want to ask it. Um, you mentioned, you know, you might suggest it for some people and maybe not others. Um, is is art therapy something that like a non-artist can find healing from? Do you need to have some background or can you come in kind of fresh and still be able to get something from it? 
Oh, I absolutely think so. Now I'm not an art therapist, so I'm, I'm a visual artist and I use art um, more autobiographically. Hmm. So having people process some of their, um, their ancestry and their life experiences through art. So I don't, I'm not an art therapist, but I do think that it's not about being an artist at all. Because we're not talking about what the end result is. We're talking about the process. What is the process that is happening? It's not about creating something different. It's about having integrity of what is happening inside of us at the moment, right? So it's about, this is not going to be a work of art. This is going to be your work of art about your integrity to your commitment to the process that you're in your commitment to your um, intimacy with yourself and what can come from that. So it's not at all for uh, just for people who might feel like they have that kind of creative outlet. It's for anyone who has feelings, right? Who can express feelings. Um, So I'm wondering if you can tell us about something you've learned um, in your work, uh, in your research or in your work as a therapist or your work as an artist, Um, just something you've learned that Uh, most of us maybe don't know and could benefit from knowing? Well, I've learned a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, An important one is humility. Mm -hmm. I think I've learned a lot of humility. And by that, I mean, my clients and the participants in our studies have taught me that their healing looks so different than anything I could have imagined it would look like that anything that I think would be helpful or that I think their healing looks like, it's actually probably not true. Mm-hmm. And that if I come in leaving that agenda, leaving that bias aside and being present with whom, whoever is in front of me, they will surprise me every time about how healing looks for them and what they needed to do within themselves to get to that place of healing. And I think what that does, too, is being able to tell a participant, being able to tell a client, I don't know what your healing looks like, but you do. Even if you don't know it in this moment, you do. And I am here to discover that with you and to help you in that process. So it gives them the freedom to explore something that doesn't have an ending that is wrapped up in a certain way that they think, oh, this is what healing looks like, because I've been told that in order for me, healing looks that I'm not going to suffer every time I see this, or this is the way I'm going to react to this situation. So it always has this kind of package deal that it's already, it already has the bow in it. It already looks exactly in a particular way when the fact is that we don't know that we don't know and that we can be in the journey with them to discover whatever that is. That's what I've learned. It kind of reminds me of um, just this discussion I was having with a colleague of mine not long ago about um, really just the trauma narrative in general. We have this idea that we kind of know what mental health looks like and we know what trauma looks like. And there are certain experiences that people have that must necessarily traumatize them. And then we're really puzzled if they're not traumatized by it and how um, people can come from really different cultures and backgrounds and have these really 
um, what what we might call traumatizing experiences and just be absolutely fine. Um, my wife's family, for instance, is kind of like there was stuff happening in Kashmir and they had to flee from that, but there wasn't a lot of PTSD or anything like that. It's just, uh, what you're describing, right? Like a completely different way of healing, a completely different system of understanding almost. Yes. It's like cultural responsiveness, right? Yeah. How do we... How do we, how are we open and be curious about the way we respond and about the way people respond and what is important to them? Are they aligned to ancestors? Does their healing come from being able to work with the ancestors? Then let's go there, right? Does their healing come from nature? Let's go there. So it's really being able to um, be aware of that be curious about it, ask a lot of questions, understand what our biases are and really know what they are and really put them aside and come fresh to the to the table with them and and also help them do their own, you know, th their own understanding of their parts. Right? It's sort of like how do they their the cultural responsiveness of all their parts, the parts that they like, the parts that they don't like, the parts that they understand really well in the ones that they don't. Um, so this will be the last question I've got for you here. And I'm just wondering if um, in your work, particularly with psychedelics, um, but in any of your work, really, if you faced any, any significant pushback or consequences or criticisms for kind of doing work that's not well, becoming more mainstream now, but hasn't hasn't been that way very long, right? Um, yeah. Still, it still isn't quite mainstream. So, yeah, you know, a few years ago, it was like either people didn't know about maps or about psychedelic work, and um, either they didn't know it or they criticized me for being a part of it. And then all of a sudden, now everybody wants to be a part of it. <laughs> you know, so it's like things have shifted a lot. So I don't get a lot of that now, even though I still get a little bit. Um, a few years ago, I did. You know, I almost lost a job because I there was an interview in the paper about um, about this work before many people knew about it, and um, I was a therapist working in the schools, and a lot of people were upset about that. Wow. You know, I think sometimes. Um, there's so much fear, right? Like, oh, you're promoting psychedelics and you work with teenagers or you're promoting, you know, like, and and so there's all this biases, mis miscommunication and assumptions that are made all the time about what it's really, what we're really doing and, and the work and the work that we're doing. And where I have encountered that is people who don't ask questions, they just have already made up their mind and they have this assumption in place. And, you know, I remember being in a, in a training one time and in the training, we all went to lunch and at lunch, people were talking about what people did. And I talked about it and all of a sudden there was no one to have lunch with for the rest of the week. Nobody would have lunch with me. And so it was without asking a question, right? Without saying like, explain to me a little bit. It was just like, I heard the word psychedelic and this is what happened. And fortunately that has changed a lot. And I hope that it will continue and that we can continue to give out information that is important for people to have so that they're not misinformed for sure. Thank you so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to Marcella Adalora. You can find out more about her research in MDMA therapy at maps.org slash research slash MDMA. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.